Welcome to Motivators Podcast. It's Emily McCullough here with Brian Curley. And we Hello. have our guest. Hey, and we have our guest, Dr. Stacy Shook and from Northwest Behavior Associates. Um, Stacy, could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am the director of Northwest Behavioral Associates, and we are a nonprofit organization that provides lifespan services to individuals on the autism spectrum. In just outside of Seattle, Washington, we're located in Bellevue, Washington. We also have an affiliate in Jordan, in Amman, Jordan, and a new affiliate in Muscat, Oman. And tomorrow is our 24th anniversary. Wow, that's that's amazing. 24 years ago, you started Northwest Behavior Associates. What year was that? That was- 1999. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's before like so many things. Uh, I mean, behavior analysis services were very brand new. I know like I was introduced to the field in 1996 and I was 16 years old. And I remember at that time, like these were just parents that had read, let me yeah. hear your voice. <laughs> right. And we're trying to find services, trying to help their children. So I guess, could you tell us a little bit about your journey and what what things were like back then and how yeah. you have been able to like keep going? Sure. So um, 100% agree with you about the, it was, it was parent-driven, um, 100% parent-driven in the 90s. So I graduated from West Virginia University in 1992 with an undergrad in psychology and had the great fortune while an undergrad to do several practicum placements. Um, The first was in my home state of West Virginia um, at a facility called the Potomac Center and which is also still around. It started in 1981, I believe. And uh, individuals were were just being, this sounds crazy, were just being deinstitutionalized um, in 1988, in 1989 in West Virginia. And so the, the Potomac Center was getting um, uh, an influx of new and, and different sorts of individuals. These were primarily adults initially, um, some of whom sadly had been in solitary confinement for many, many years, mm-hmm. who had, you know, diagnoses of mental retardation or schizophrenia, who had they been born 30 or 40 years later, probably would have had a diagnosis on the autism spectrum. And so the second summer that I worked there, there, there was actually a respite house that was um, part of the facility where families could bring Um, their children, sometimes adult children, sometimes younger children, you know, for a week or so at a time. And that was my, that summer was my first introduction to a child with autism. So there was, it was a little girl, her name was Sophia. um, And she was the first person, the first child that I ever met with autism. And she was so different from all of those adults, right, that were at the Potomac Center. Um, She was just fascinating to me um and let's not forget that that's around the time that rain man came out so um people's interest in autism peaked uh, around that time and so I she just really she was just fascinating to me she was this beautiful just gorgeous little um seven-year-old who seemed so bright whose language was primarily echolalic um, who engaged in all kinds of competing behaviors, primarily, you know, for attention, looking back on it. But again, she was just so different from these adults, right, who had been, in many cases, institutionalized. And so I went back to, you know, the university, and I was like, I met this little girl with autism, and this is just, wow, right? Um, and so my professor at the time, um, Dr. Joe Scotty, said, you know, you should do a practicum placement at the May Institute. Um, before you graduate. So that's what I did the summer before my senior year. And that's before the May Institute had all of these different um, locations, right? This, there was just Chatham. And I think they may have just started like the TBI um, clinic in Braintree or Arlington at that time. Um, 
residential facility for individuals with uh, with autism. I worked primarily in the, the preschool and elementary um, classrooms and residential facilities. And I was like, this is 100% what I want to do. I want to apply this science um, to this population. And I, I had applied for graduate programs kind of naively thinking, oh, obviously I will apply to clinical psych programs. I mean, there were no but you yeah. could not apply to an ABA um, graduate program then. And um, I did not get in. I got waitlisted for one school. I did not get in, you know, full full disclosure. My GRE scores were horrible. I'm horrible at math. Um, so what was I going to do? And so Dr. Scotty and Dr. Rob Hawkins um, said, hey, you should look at this place in New Jersey called Princeton Child Development Institute. If you want to, if you want to work with um, little kids with autism, that's the place to go. And that's what I did. I moved to New Jersey, um, started working in the preschool module at PCDI and, you know, from day one realized, yep, this is it. This level of, of fidelity, um, is, and this application of the science in this way is, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, and, by that time, there were a few, a year, you just within a year, there were a few programs, graduate programs in applied behavior analysis. One of them happened to be at Temple University, which was very close to Princeton, New Jersey. Um, it was a multidisciplinary program between psych and special education. I applied, got in, went, and that was 100% life-changing, right? So on the education side, I got to work with Saul Axelrod on the psychology side. I got to work with Phil Heinlein and I, 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 I became, you know, six degrees of separation or two degrees of separation from Skinner um, mm -hmm. through, through Dr. Mm -hmm. Heinlein and um, that, you know, experience PCDI. I mean, up until that point, West Virginia, amazing. Of course, PCDI, amazing um, temple, totally life-changing. And I realized okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to um, apply the science to individuals on the spectrum. Um, and, you know, of course, the individuals that I worked with at that point in time were all, you know, three and four-year-olds. So like many individuals in this field, oh, I'm only going to do early intervention, right? Um, not realizing, of course, or not considering that people have birthdays. <laughs> so they're going to be, these, these kids that you love, they're going to keep getting older and older. Um, I was encouraged, right, to, I think you should go, you should get your PhD. I applied to a variety of schools. I remember it was um, January 11th of 1995, I got into the University of Kansas. That was my dream school. Um, I will never forget that day. First thing I thought was, I never have to take the GRE again. That's over. Um, and I've gotten into my dream school and Don Bayer wasn't taking any more students. Um, he was getting, you know, ready to retire soon. And so then... I started getting in, into some other schools and I thought, okay, I'm, I can't believe this. I'm not going to go to Kansas because I'm not going to have the advisor that I really, really wanted. Um, I ended up coming to the university of Washington and on paper was, was very well matched um, with, with an advisor. And um, I'd worked, I'd continued to work in home programs in New Jersey in the mid to late nineties, right. They were, they were all the rage. This was after let me hear your voice. Um, you know, obviously Bridget Taylor was was consulting in a lot of um, children's programs, and I happened to move to Washington at the same time as another family who was moving from the Pennsylvania area who had had a home program that had been supervised by Bridget, and so she connected us, and we both showed up in September of 95 in Washington thinking like, oh my God, what have we gotten ourselves into? There's nobody else here who is doing this. <laughs> um, and it was crazy. I mean, we, we carried on business as usual, right? Okay. Here's the program. Here's the binder. Here's the, you know, whatever. Um, the, 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 the learner was a well-oiled machine. He was five at the time. He'd been in a program since he was three. Um, it was great. And um, started school and then kind of by word of mouth, I think um, Families for Effective Autism Treatment had just started as an, or as an advocacy uh, parent organization here in Seattle. That learner's mother joined, was a member, and then she's talking about, hey, my son has this ABA home program and everyone else is like, what is this thing, right? Um, and that's how it started. So I started doing consulting 
um, with learners in their homes, you know, very traditional, I call it East Coast, um, you know, mm -hmm. 1990, late 1990s ABA, um, found some college students who became, you know, behavior technicians, of course, then they were called home tutors, um, all the while carried on at, at the University of Washington, we participated or we launched the Project Data National Grant that was this ABA-based preschool program specifically for um, preschoolers with autism. And what I thought was going to happen was that we, that I was going to start a school, um, like a PCDI kind of situation. And I was going to start a school in Washington that was going to be for individuals with autism, younger learners. And um, we had, I'd formed really good relationships with one principal in particular at, a, at an elementary school. And we, we, we had a plan in place that was going to be a, um, this program was going to be housed on the grounds of a public school. Um, and it was going to be privately funded, right? But it was going, we were going to have a house, we were going to have this house at this school or a home at this school, and we would have access to typically developing peers whenever we needed them. And we were just, you know, proceeding full steam ahead. And then the district's, you know, legal counsel got wind of this and they're like, yeah, you can't do that. You you, you can't have a private program on, on public school grounds. What are you people thinking, right? Um, and that was just as I was wrapping up my dissertation. So that was May of 99. And so we had to totally change gears and we said, okay, we'll just, we'll just, we'll, ha we'll have an office, we'll have a clinic. Um, and we, you know, quite honestly threw that together within, I mean, we opened on September 2nd. So we scrambled, we threw that together. Obviously we had our, we had a client base, right? From the learners that we had been working with driving all over the place to their homes. We centralized that um, and that was the, there were five of us. Um, and that was the beginning, that was the beginning of MBA. Um, and again, still very, very PCDI-like, um, you know, we, we use the same kinds of graphing techniques. Um, we use the same kinds of very individualized programs um, that were, you know, very clearly written. It wasn't just like we would say, oh, we're gonna teach this kid to label nouns, right? We had the, the entire response definition and pro teaching protocol and data collection system all mapped out, which um, I began to realize even then was a little bit of an outlier because by then more and more programs were, you know, cropping up. Um, that was 99. We became, several of us became certified in 2000, um, which was the first year that national certification was available right before it was just in Florida. So I always joke that my, my um, BCBA number is, is 65. So I'm, one dash zero zero dash zero zero six five. So when I when I when I'm doing CEs and I'm filling out the um, CE certificates and I see the number now, I'm like, holy cow, yes. that's uh, that's a, there's a there's a big difference between sixty five and and some of my <laughs> my current employees' numbers. Um, and we just grew, honestly. You know, we we had the great fortune of being located in Microsoft Country. Um, again, a number, uh, a parent group, um, very advocated with Microsoft to provide insurance funding for ABA. That was the, you know, the first program in the first insurance program in this area. Um, and we really just continued growing, usually in response to a specific request or a specific need. Um, so about mm -hmm. two years into MBA, we had a couple of learners who were going to be gone for the entire summer, freed up some time for two staff members. They said, hey, we should do some social groups um, because we have all this extra time this summer. So that's how social groups started. Um, I, I, I wish I could say that we sat down in 1999 and made like a five-year plan and a 10-year plan. We, we did not do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing, right? I mean, in fact, when we I think, Emily, you know this, when we went to open the bank account, um, they asked us for our business license. And uh, one of my colleagues and I looked at each other like, oh. You need a business license? Yeah. Um, and we actually said, oh, we don't have an on us. And for some reason, they let us go ahead and open the bank account, right? And then we immediately went home and <laughs> we need a business license. Um, so it was the wild, wild west. And we've just continued um, 
to grow. So we, we very firmly believed that when we made a commitment to a family and to a learner, we were, we were a partner with them until both parties agreed that we, you know, that partnership would end or change. And that's how the lifespan model um, started, you know, so now we have learners um, as young as two, and we have learners as old as 35. Um, and obviously, those two learners programs don't look the same. But they are, um, you know, bo both of those programs are utilizing the principles of behavior analysis. And as our population um, that we serve started to get older um, and we realized, hey, there, there's this whole cohort of folks who have had intensive early intervention, who have had intervention throughout the, their school career, um, and now they need something to do, they need a job and they need um, support with that job and maybe more support than um, the state can provide for them. Um, we started the community-based instruction program so that we, mm -hmm. yes, part of that was vocational, pre-vocational training, but there was also, there's also a huge component of that that is just how to navigate your world, right? How to use public transportation, how to budget, how to order food, um, how to find your niche and have a um, a leisure skill that you can I'm going to be in a bowling league um uh, there there's obviously components yeah, noticed, of that yeah I noticed that uh, in your in your protocols the NBA library has stuff on like relationship building yes uh, all of that which I think is, is wonderful yes how to order pizza and how to you know be nice to your girlfriend. Yeah, those are, we have programs for that. And we have like the traditional programs for, you know, point to red. So, um, you know, I think we're a very unique organization in that, in that it affords um, our employees, our staff, the opportunity to work across uh, multiple ages and multiple skill levels, right? We do not age out learners. And it also, I think, is, is helpful to see, um, especially for young behavior analysts, to see the trajectory in some cases of, you know, interventions. So, you know, obviously we have learners who are in um, typical, you, you know, your standard uh, university programs. We have learners who are in university programs specifically for individuals on the autism spectrum. We have um, learners who are participating in their district transition program and, you know, an internship and getting jobs. And then we have learners that, you know, we are focusing on one very, very specific vocational task, you know, with and a very specific communication system so that they can be successfully um, employed with, you know, heavy support. So it runs the entire gamut. And that's where wow. MBA is now. Wow. So that, um, from a business perspective, the uh, the insurance help you got from Microsoft sounds like it came right at the perfect time. Yes. Right. Like when did? So I I've been in ABA market since 2015, and I remember back then it was like maybe seven or eight states had the mandate. So when did when did the state of Washington actually mandate ABA? And like when when we did Microsoft find it important? You still we don't, don't have a mandate, no. So our um, insurance coverage for autism in this state is not legislative. It was um, litigated. So um, there is no state mandate. There is state pressure to okay. provide um, services. Okay. Yes, but you are 100% right. So Microsoft, um, they were with one insurance company when we when they first um, initiated the coverage, they then switched and they've been with another carrier since I think 2000, 2001 maybe. Um, and they were, you know, the pioneers of, yeah. of that insurance plan. And, Did and that take like some lobbying from you or was that, was that under their, was that their discretion? That was 100% like, parents. That was 100% Microsoft parents. Parent pressure, and, wow. Hey, um, I mean, it's a privately funded insurance plan, obviously, right? Um, and them saying we need to have, we need to have this, we need to provide um, coverage for ABA for our kids. Um, mm. Some of those learners were getting services from us. Some of those learners were not. And then, obviously, when Microsoft started um, and and continued doing that, providing that coverage um, as Microsoft employees, right, started 
migrating to an Amazon or a Google or a Nintendo or, you know, uh, whatever, right, they're going. And, you know, I'm pretty sure they probably, again, parents use use that as a lobbying strategy with HR. Yes, I would love to come work at Amazon. However, uh, yeah. I have this plan, you know, I have this child and the, these, you know, this is a medically necessary service. Yeah. And so again, we start, then we started seeing those other really tech companies start providing, um, uh, providing those services. And then with the Mental Health Parity Act, that is really what I think what tipped Washington um, companies in the companies that weren't already on board um, with providing insurance coverage. The you know um, Obamacare I think is really what what tipped that in and in, in families again um, you know litigating um, with the uh, insurance commissioner so. Mm. So was that like was the billing of that at like on like day one was it just all over the place like was it oh yeah I'm sure they didn't have any standards right oh they no they they had made figuring up it out Microsoft yeah. had made up codes that um what they were informed by the by the practitioners in the area right so we're saying these are the kinds of things we do and they're like oh we'll make up a number for that so right? was this an insurance paid or was this like a subsidy that they gave it back. A- it was no, it was paid. Uh, it, the the both companies, both insurance plans, paid for it directly. Okay. Okay. Um, so so they just figured it out as as they went. They, I mean, initially they just paid for whatever you asked for, which of course got them in a little bit of financial trouble. So they had to start yeah. putting, you know, some parameters around that. But yeah, initially it was just like, hey, you send in the basically a timesheet, and then. Um, you know, will will I mean for us for for an organization we got paid directly at that time. Of course, the BTS behavior technicians were all independent contractors, so I think they paid the family, and then the you know the they reimbursed the family, and the family um, paid the BT in 2010 when licensure went into effect in the state of Washington. Was it 2000? God, was it that long ago? Oh, God. Okay. When licensure went into effect in the state of Washington, Mm -hmm. then it became um, a much different ballgame, right? Because then you could no longer have behavior technicians off doing their own thing. They had to be, um, because they were now certified, they needed to be certified behavior technicians, which is kind of the state equivalent of an RBT. So they had to meet supervision hours. They had to be paid for via an organization so that was another huge shift um when all of a sudden everything had to go through um there was no more kind of private pay for that yeah yeah wow yeah i can imagine that must have been like i can't even imagine trying like what the billing situation was on a daily or weekly basis like when you first started it was actually pretty easy because we just sent them we just sent them this like word you know what i mean like word document said please please pay me this much please pay me this amount of money and yeah and they did right um so yeah i mean in retrospect those were the good old days there were no authorizations right right? there were no there were no peer peer reviews there was no um yeah no uh negotiating for half an hour to get 15 more minutes of 97155 there was none of that so um i always say you know we want we wanted so badly to be and we needed to be um legitimized and licensed and uh it's definitely be careful what you wish for right because as soon as we became part of the medical model we became part of the medical model and we um behavior analysts are not prepared for that yeah. Still, I don't think we're prepared for it. So oh, no, we're still adjusting. It's going to yeah. be a while. It's going to be a while. I wanted to to make a, a little plug here um, uh, on the lifespan model that you were talking about, especially um, because I think one of the things that makes NBA so unique from organizations that I've come in contact with is, is your ongoing development of your curriculum. Yep. And and that it's it's standardized in a way, but also so customizable for the needs of of your learners. Yes. Um, and I love that. I think that's it's a strength of yours because of of your background in 
in instructional design and development, child development, human development. And I think um, sometimes we forget behavior analysts, most of the time we don't have training in this. Yes. Uh, we rely on these, these assessment tools to kind of help us guide us, but we forget that a lot of these assessment tools are not developmental um, yes. criterion reference. And so I just wanted to make a plug. There's a wonderful webinar that Dr. Shook did with us. Um, it's on, uh, it, if you can find it on Motivity's website, um, and you can take a look at, it's, it's called the Working in a Lifespan Model, Identifying and Operationalizing Curricula for Learners with ASD. I think it's just a great um, reference for organizations that want their behavior analysts to learn more about um, curriculum design. And uh, so just wanted to give that shout and that's out. That's definitely, um, you know, we when we get young behavior analysts that is not trained, they have not typically had training in, um, as you said, developmental scope and sequence of, of skill acquisition, which is um, a huge problem for behavior analysts, especially if you think, if you consider the fact that the emphasis is still in early intervention. Um, and so you have this little three-year-old and you do need to consider, I mean, you, you need to consider where they are. You need to consider where you want them to be. Um, and you need to be able to take a skill, you know, if it's asking questions, for example, you need to be able to look at all of the steps of here's where they are and here's where they need to, here's where we want them to be. And sometimes, you know, most of the time that is not a linear progression. It's not just a, let's go down the list on a, in a, in an assessment and go one, two, three, four, right? That is a, that is a tree that has many, many branches or a road that has many, many turns. And um, if you can't consider or don't know how to consider all of those, you know, component skills, you're going to have a really hard time getting to a very robust, you know, composite skill. Um, you're going to have, you you are going to have a learner who um, potentially is responding is their responding is robotic or it doesn't generalize, um, mm -hmm. doesn't maintain right and I don't quite know what the answer to that is. I mean, I was I had a psychology undergraduate degree. No, I mean I had no background in, in any kind of education. I mean, in in special education, right? That was purely um, psychology. It was also I was lucky I got to spend a lot of time in rat lab. So it was, it was the basic application. And then I was afforded the opportunity to apply it. Um, and then I went to a interdisciplinary, you know, master's program where by my own admission, I still focused on the um, basic application, right? The, 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 the theory. Um, and th that's really be where I, learned about radical behaviorism. And so it wasn't until I got to the University of Washington in my PhD program, which was in special education, where, where quite honestly, they expected me to show up knowing all of this because I was in an education program and my master's degree was an MED. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. No, I have never, I've never run a circle time. No, in fact, I do not know what it's like to be, you know, in a traditional preschool classroom or first grade classroom. Um, and so because as doctoral students, you're pushed into, you know, other cognates, I mean, that is where I, I really started to learn, oh, <laughs> you need to look at human development, right? And because our kids are humans. Um, and yeah, they, in some cases, they might be a little boat that we're trying to plug holes in, but they're still humans and they're still developing, right? And really, you know, take into consideration that autism is not a delay, it's a disorder. So you do have to be familiar with all of the branches of a tree for a skill. Otherwise, you're, you're really going to do a disservice. Um, I think um, utilizing all of the curricula that are available in multiple, dis multiple disciplines, right? Look at the curriculum that, that a uh, speech therapists have um, available to them. Look at uh, curricula that special education teachers use for math or that secondary special education teachers use um, for independent skills, right? I mean, behavior analysis isn't a curriculum, it's a science. So as I said during many peer reviews in a, in a raised voice, I can, I can, you can give me any skill and we will teach it 
using behavior analytic strategies, right? You can give me any curriculum. You should be able to give me any curriculum and I should be able to operationalize that and provide, you know, intervention or using that curriculum. We don't need to be the ones that go around making all of the materials. We need to, you know, find the materials that support the skill that we want to teach and then use the science that we, that we know that we have and use something that's already readily available. Otherwise you're just, you know, spinning your wheels. We have folks all the time, you know, we'll be talking about a problem solving program, right? And we'll say, oh, we have to, we have to come up with a problem where the cause and the problem and the effect are very clear. And you'll have a behavior, a young, you know, BCBA who'll say, oh my gosh, it's going to take me hours to come up with examples. I was like, you don't have to do it. Go to a problem solving curriculum that comes out of the speech world, right? And just take those materials and operationalize it. I'm like, oh, that's genius. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be behavior analytic. No, because that's behavior awesome. analysis is not a curriculum. It is, awesome. it is a, it is a science, right? So um, I, I always get furious with people, um, insurance companies that will say like, well, that's not a behavior analytic curriculum. If we'll say, for example, we're using, I don't know, we're using uh, some dialectical behavior therapy, um, you know, curriculum for, for, for young children, trying to teach them emotional regulation. Well, DBT isn't a curric isn't an ABA curriculum. I will say, well, that's because there is no ABA. That's because applied behavior analysis isn't a curriculum. It's the method. It's the, it's the how, it's not the what. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the state of our, um, the, the handicapping state of our funding right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I did want to, to kind of shift uh, the topic and um, talk a little bit about the STAR project. Sure. So from our experience um, working with your organization, we've had the privilege of working with the awesome group, a team in Jordan, um, providing behavior analytic ser services. I guess I just wanted to hear a little bit about like how that started and and the work there. Sure. So in 2001, um, a family, a Jordanian family reached out to us. Um, they were bringing their son to the United States to um, get evaluated. They assumed that he was going, it was going to result in a diagnosis of autism. And um, the, the father and the children had dual citizenship as Canadians. The dad had gone to high school, university there, and they were assuming that after their child got a diagnosis, they were going to need to relocate to North America to get services. So they were, um, the, the, the father had been, had, had spent his, um, you know, youth and, and early adulthood in Vancouver. So they, somebody told them that they needed to find a BCBA. Um, and so at that point they looked for, you know, BCBAs close to Vancouver, British Columbia, at, which of course would have been in Washington. And um, I believe there were five at that time and three of them were at MBA. So they reached out to us. Um, we provided a consultation and they began to realize, oh, wait a minute, we could maybe get behavior analytic services in Jordan. We might not need to uproot everybody and move them to Canada. So I started consulting with that family in 2001 and they had, you know, of course, they had some um, friends in Jordan whose children were also going through either evaluation uh, processes or had potential diagnoses. And so I started providing consultation um, for those families as well and trained folks there. There was a, um, uh, some great speech therapists, some great OTs. There was an educational consultant who had actually gotten her master's degree at the University of Oregon. So she spoke the same language um, that we spoke. She really kind of took over as the, as the program manager and that's how it started. So from 2001, gosh, till 2010, I think, 2009, 2010. Um, it was just me going back and forth a couple of times a year. And then we said, okay, hey, let's have a, let's have somebody there on the ground all the time. Um, and we had uh, two BTs uh, in succession who, again, were not, they were not hired or they were not MBA employees. They were employees of the families. 
but it really was taking more of the MBA model and implementing it for these, you know, five or six kids. In the meantime, we'd had another family um, come to MBA for services for a summer, and they ended up staying for two years. They went back, they, you know, they, they split the family um, to have some of the family here, some of the family there. They went back and my intention was always to be finished with Jordan when those first three learners graduated from high school. Um, and so that kind of coincided with um, the other family moving back to Jordan. And I thought, what a waste to have been there for all this time. And they're like, it just to go away. <laughs> um, and so then we decided, okay, we actually need to start a formal, a real life, uh, you know, a, a real life organization. And so that is how the star project started um in 2015 so the the model is 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 basically the mba model right there are bcbas who are program managers some are local um some are um, we have one bcba who is an american married to a jordanian she actually went to jordan with another um behavior analytic organization worked for a while ended up staying and made the transition to to tsp all of our um BTs are RBTs. And so our goal was to really um, bring quality behavior analytic services to, to the kingdom and um, uh, really to legitimize, you know, a service delivery model and to be able to provide it, provide services in Arabic, because when it was just me and the two folks from America. Like once you got past, you know, give me cup, <laughs> that was the end of the Arabic, right? Um, and and that just, you know, you can't, you can't, that's like colonization. That's not what we wanted to do. So yeah. that's how TSP um, started. And um, now there's a, a new organization um, called Spectrum Child Development Services in um, Muscat, Oman, that started from a family who came from um, Oman to TSP to get services, split up the family, and now they've they've reunited the family back in Muscat and um, have started a, like another little offshoot. So, yeah, that's right. Awesome. And uh, how did you come up with the name? Um, so the star, I did not come up with the spectrum name. That was, that was them. The star project is, um, named after the first learner whose name means the, whose name is the North star in Arabic. Um, so it's named after him. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. It's really neat. Um, well, I, I mean, it's, it's, it must be really rewarding to be able to, to take services and the science to an area that just wouldn't have access to that otherwise and helping that grow that's really neat i i had the opportunity i mean honestly jordan was jordan in the 2000s was no different than washington state in the in the mid 1990s really I, it's yeah. kind of surprising how early it was i mean yeah the reason why i'm saying that is i i had the opportunity to do a similar project with japan but that was like 2006 and it was there was like nothing there yeah. you know at the time it just seemed yeah I guess it's you think I guess you just assume different things about different countries and well and honestly there there's almost still nothing in Japan right so we have yeah. a, a, a former MBA staff member who's Japanese worked here for many years moved back to Japan and she is working with the universities there to set up, um, you know, a QBA uh, course sequence. So th they have behavior analysts in Japan, but they don't provide clinical services. They're all in um, academia. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, here it is 2023 and Japan of all places doesn't have a robust behavior analytic community. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Who are they doing research for? That's, are they going to use the cool. research? It's just very cultural. Like that's if that's the important pieces of of social services is the the research. Um, yeah, it, it's just it's different culture, different cultural. Right, priority. but I mean, their research still is like I mean, they're finding the same things, right? Like they're 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 doing research to find that people need care, and they, are they <laughs> just like ignoring work. it? Or yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> They're just being like, wow, we should really do something about it. And then just be like, okay, let's do the next project. Like, right. What are they? If only, if only there was a place where we could go and yeah. find that this already <laughs> yeah. worked. 
If only there was yeah. a Dragon Ball that already existed. Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't been back for a really long time, but when I was there in the late 2000, like 2006 to 2010, it, there was still very much a stigma yes. around around that word. I mean, we actually had to change the name of our company to not mm. have the word autism in it or Jiheisho in Japanese. Um, it had, they had I should, a- Emily, I should connect you with Yoko. Um, I who, think I might know her, but yeah, would I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be really cool. She's the MBA um, staff member who who's in Japan now. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I do know a Yoko, but there's probably a lot of Yokos. So <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Um, okay, so um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was your experience with um, how you started with Motivity. I think it's such a cool story. Um, I don't yeah. know, a lot of people don't realize NBA was Motivity's very first customer um, and research partner, really. Um, Motivity was created a, a lot because of Stacy and Stacy's relationship with the founder and president Rex Chikovitz. Um and the input and the um, expertise that you brought into the world of data collection and and moving from paper to electronic. Um, NBA and Stacy, your and your team, you guys kind of waited out the first oh, sure. wave like there was a first wave of electronic data collection probably starting in 2012 um and there i was think some... we waited out like the first six waves <laughs> <laughs> right and and just waiting for something that was really going to serve your company yeah. also serve uh the, your model um, yeah. i guess talk a little bit about that and 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 how that partnership with motivity kind of shaped your practice absolutely um yeah so we you know we were we were gonna live and die by paper we were not (laughs) going down the um the 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 platform model and 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 the main the 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 real reason was because none of those models were individualized enough for us right so you know when we have a learner and we say they're they need to you know learn question asking um they they need to learn to ask what uh, what question for example um, it doesn't mean that they need to learn to ask a what question the same way that three other kids here learn to ask a what question, right? And so it's a, it, it's, it's a, that program is individualized for them. It may come from a skeleton of a template, but it's going to be individualized for them. And we, we just, I mean, we did tons of demos, right? And we, they just, they, they fell apart very easily, you know, very, very early into a demo where they said, oh, you just plug in this you know, this number or you link it to this assessment and like, yeah, but we do other things besides that assessment, right? We take bits and pieces of standardized assessments and sometimes we deliver them in a non-standardized protocol so we can get, you know, information about a specific domain. Um, And so I I know I really just thought we're going to be the only behavior analysts in the whole world soon that are, are, that are still using black Mm -hmm. pen and, and paper. Um, And then, you know, Rex, called and you know wanted to come talk to me and I was like okay great and um you know he he did not come to sell a product right he came to say hey um you're still using paper why (laughs) right and I told him why and you know I think he found that you know extremely interesting and really took the time to okay now what does it mean when you say probe now, what does it mean when you say teach? What's a prompt? Like, what are you talking about? And, you know, really, really invested the time to, you know, try to learn all of our, you know, crazy behavior analytic, you know, lingo and, you know, worked with us to say, if if you were teaching somebody, you know, skill X, what do you need the device to do? What do you need the platform to do for you? Um, because, you know, he, we told him right away, you could have one learner that has five or six different kinds of data collection, right? They could, we could be taking rate data. We could be taking frequency data. We could be taking duration data. We could be taking per opportunity data based on the skill that we're teaching and their particular learning history. And, um, you know, I think he found that pretty interesting and he was just like, that's not how other people do it. I was like, right. That's why we're still using the black pen. 
pen the paper because that's how other people do it. Um, and he and, you know, Catalan started trying to build stuff for us and um, would come back, you know, with here's what this looks like. Okay, that looks great. And then they would say, well, this is what you this is what you have to do to get the information in. And we're like, oh, my God, we're not programmers. What are you talking about putting like these like codes and everything right and you know Catalan's yeah, hands that was the first model yeah 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 his fingers are flying yeah. and Rex is like you know no they can't do that right um and so they just continued you know to ask questions and you know say what would you what would you like to see and we would say oh we'd like this right and poor Rex I mean Emily knows this Rex will come to me and he'll say okay here's the list of 15 things that you want you're like can you prioritize them and I'll be like yeah so one through 14 is urgent and one one could wait like three months like that's okay right (laughs) (laughs) you're like uh you're killing me so that's how it started we um you know we were the beta key uh the beta site for a number of different iterations we were the you know for goal space for v motive you know for all of that yeah and And, and just uh, just for the audience uh motivity is funded by the national institute of health um Grants, which Goal Space and the Motive are, are these grants where we're funded for uh, parts and features of the system, um, and so we are required to to do um, user uh, usability testing and clinical outcome outcome testing. So, uh, Stacy and NBA but just have partnered with us to be a research site um, for many years, and uh, it's been valuable for us. Yeah, and you know Rex would uh, Rex was really you know boots on the ground, right? He went into kids homes with the behavior technicians and the program managers to to you know try to figure out okay how is data collection going to work for this and we we sprung on him hey by the way we have all these groups so how are we going to take how are we going to collect data for six kids at the same time and some of them have the same programs but some of them don't and the same person has to take data for all of those kids and he'd be just like okay we can do it (laughs) you know um And then, you know, a couple of years ago, he was like, I think, are you ready? Are you ready to really like do this? Because we'd had, we had pockets of kids for periods of time that were using the different components, right, as part of the, that research. And um, he, he said, are you, are you ready to start the transition for everybody? Um, And I said, yeah. Um, What was that? That was. 20 I think think late 2019 early 2019 Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um and we did we made you know all the programming we had we had we had learners whose programs are already in motivity so of course those are the ones that started first and then we had the goal that program managers were supposed to be um, transitioning one learner a month from the binder to motivity um, and now, you know, we have obviously we have staff members who are who are younger than 2019 who 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 n- never n- don't know a life of a binder. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it, it's been um, it, it's been great to say the least. I, I think one. Um, so we we have still a number of templates that are not even migrated into Motivity. So we have. Um, I think at the time that we said, we said, okay, we're moving, we had about five or 6,000 templates of programs. Mm -hmm. And we had to get those, all of those into Motivity. And some of them are a little bit redundant, redundant, needed weeded out. So we we have, we do have a library right now that has like still needs to be refined and then it'll go into MBA read only, but we still have a ton of programs on, on the server that still need to be pulled over um, into Motivity. And obviously all new programs are being written directly into Motivity. And so one of the things that we've used for unrestricted hours for some of our BCBA candidates is working on that, uh, um, that uh, template migration. Yeah, and I think when they start doing that, they think that it's busy work. But we had really good feedback from one of our BCBA candidates who said, "Yeah, I thought this was just busy work." And I realized, you know, I've learned more doing the this template transition than I learned like in two years of a graduate program about yeah. about measurement, yeah. right? About procedural fidelity, um, mm-hmm. about technical writing, because I'm like a writing, you know 
beat beat, beat, beat everyone over the head with writing. Um, but she's like, I would not, I would never have learned. Even in even in writing a program in a Word document, I wouldn't have learned because the way mm -hmm. the measures are set up in Motivity, you know, it it really does force you to ask, okay, what's the question that we're asking? What's the problem that we're trying to solve with this program? Mm -hmm. And how are the data? I mean, we should be asking this no matter how we write the program, right? But yeah. how are the data going to reflect that we are in fact answering that question? And so it's turned out to be um, a, an amazing um, training tool. And if yeah. if we continue to grow kind of our own BCBAs, what that means is that that we're getting program managers who do know a little bit more about developmental scope and sequence because they've had their hands in all of these templates. Yes. They certainly know more about measurement mm -hmm. um, than, than a lot of folks know coming out of uh, programs. And they're going to be much more fluent at writing these, uh, you know, creating new programs in Motivity. So it's been win win for us, I think, across across the board. Would I like to wave a magic wand and have the rest of those 2000 templates in Motivity tomorrow? 100%. <laughs> um, but the great news is we tell our BCBA candidates that we we literally have limitless unrestricted hours <laughs> just yeah. to get that, just to get those templates migrated. So yeah, I mean, I think yeah. it's really great to hear that feedback because I've been here, I hear that a lot from our, our customers is but BC behavior analysts will tell us this is making me a better behavior analyst because yeah. of how precise I need to be when I'm building the programs. I have to think, like you said, I have to think, how is this data displaying right. uh, to answer those questions so that they have to think of it all the way through, all the way through to what the graph is going to look like. Even when you're setting up the targets, right? Because, you know, you could, you have to decide, is this going to be a single measure or is this going to be uniform measure right and if it's uniform mm -hmm. great we're teaching colors you're going to teach every single you know you're going to present the materials the same way great put all of those colors as a uniform you know as uniform targets mm -hmm. but for the really meaty programs around executive functioning and perspective taking where you have multiple targets um within a within a program those measures all look different, right? Even though they're getting to the same end. And so you can't just throw all of them into a uniform target. You have to have them all as separate sets or targets because they each have to have their own measurement system. And you have to be, um, not only do you have to plan ahead, but you could get three quarters of the way through a program and realize, oh crud, I need mm -hmm. to go back and split this all back out, right? And yeah. would not you do not have to do that when you're writing a program in Word because nothing yeah. triggers you to say, it's not going to work until it doesn't work in the field. And then you're, you know, it's too late. Yeah. It's like extreme critical thinking. Yeah. I, I fall into that all the time um, with building pieces of software all the time, because you mm -hmm. need to think of the edge cases of like, and I always come back to, to Emily and Rex and, and some of our, our clinical product people to go, okay, well, what do you want to, what do you want to happen when this happens? And they're like, I don't know, just make it like whatever it's supposed <laughs> to happen, you know, like, like, but um, it really yeah. makes you think about like, okay, well, like how actually do you want this to work? Right. Cause it's very easy to say it, but it's very difficult oh, yeah. to put it into practice and to make yeah. it work and to make it successful at the end. Behavior um, analysis is the difference between writing programs the way we used to write them. That was us just saying it. Oh, just right. do this. But now, I mean, we have, you know, our, our, our in-house motivity guru, Carolyn, right there, there, I mean, that poor woman, all week long, she'll get a message from me. So this is what I want this to do. I want this to show like this. Now you go in there and you make that happen, right? And then she'll go in and sh she asks a lot of questions and then she'll come back and she'll either say, okay, we can't we can't make that happen the way you want to right now. So here's the workaround or here's the way to make it happen, um, which, you know, is, is, is great learning for all of us to, to really think about Mm -hmm. This really, this is really what we're asking. Is this really what we want to see? And yeah, I mean, one of the definitions of behavior analysis is that it's technical, right? Right. But I don't think one of the things that I love about like the engineering field is and bringing it and putting it in an electronic format. I think it's it's making behavior analysts better at being technical. I absolutely agree, and that was. One of my worries, Rex will let you, will tell you from the very beginning, you know, when he said, oh, I, the, the program could do this for you. The program could do that for you. And I said, I don't, I never want there to be 
a data collection system or a platform that takes the analysis away from the yeah. human, right? We still have to be the ones. We're we're still the scientists. We still need to use the data to make decisions, right? And so the the platform needs to show us the data in a meaningful, reliable, valid assist. way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a big difference, a huge difference between Motivity and other platforms, because Motivity does allow us, um, affords us the opportunity to be so individualized that we can continue to, to, to be the analyst, right? I mean, right now, you know, trying to work with, uh, with, with another organization to, you know, get the scheduling and, you know, all of that also in a platform, um, when, when I, you know, I mentioned to them, oh, we're using Motivity and, and he was like, well, you know, what, what's, what's the big draw of Motivity? And I was like, because it's built around us, like it works for us. And I don't think it's just like, oh, it works for MBA. I, I it works for all organizations, um, you know, w- with whom Motivity works, right. It's really individualized. Um, and that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, I mean that's that's what we think, you know. Um, yeah, it's 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 great to hear that because that's our goal. You know, we don't want to get in the way. We want to be the the assistant that helps you uh, provide better clinical outcomes at the end of the day, right? And, and I I analysis. really respect the fact that Motivity says we're here for this clinical side. We are not mm-hmm. here for all of this other practice management, right? And and I really think, I mean, in the 2000s, there was this push for um, these one-stop shops for, for behavior analysis, speech therapists, OTs, PTs, we're all going to be in the same place. And you could go and you could get all these services in one place. And that did not, that did not work, right? Because that's like way too many cooks in one kitchen, who's supervising who, whose area of expertise is, you know, overshadowing somebody else's. And, you know, I, MBA really resisted that clinical model. And I, I, I think that personally, that the wave of platforms is going to be the same. I think that platforms are going to start integrating more and more with one another instead of trying to have a one-stop shop that does all of your practice management and all of your clinical because again you have too many cooks in a kitchen who who don't know enough about either one of those um, areas and you get subpar services right so motivity works because motivity focuses on one component of a behavior analytic organization right? The, the, the clinical side of it. You do not care about our scheduling. You do not care about our billing. You do not care about our authorizations, right? You care about what we're, what services we're delivering to, to a learner. And um, I, I think that's great. Yeah. yeah. That's, oh, go ahead, Brian. <clears throat> no, that's, uh, you know, since I came on about two years ago, two and a half years ago now, that's been my direction. Uh, that That's the that's how I saw Motivity succeeding in the end, because mm-hmm. I came from an all-in-one platform, you mm-hmm. know, at the beginning, like I saw that grow. And when you build something like that, there's only so much, especially in a startup world and which they're very much not anymore, but like you you have a finite number of resources and you need to delegate those resources to build products that can make you money, your business. Yep. And if no one's pounding on your door saying, hey, this the clinical side really isn't working for us, if you're still getting clients and they're going, yeah, it'll work, then the time isn't being spent on the clinical. It's just right. not. It's being spent on the billables and the claim recognition and the accounts receivable and the scheduling automation and like those types of tools, which are great, which help operations and help run your business. But yep. if that's what you're going to do, then that's what you should do. And that's what you should own. And that's what you should be great at. Right. And that's what we think about the clinical side is that there's so much that's still missing. And we have team. That's all we do. You know, 
So oh, to yeah, us, you guys are like never going to get to my stream. list of fifteen things if you yeah. have to worry about all those other areas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we won't be able to be innovative. We won't be able right. to do like this cool feature that's up sending text notifications to caregivers to help them right. with generalization, and we're not going to have like video modeling embedded into our clinical model, or we're not going to have clinical decision support. Those types of things are will get shuffled to the side be, yeah. to help organizations bill, which thankfully we don't have that. But we do care about organizations billing and their scheduling. That's why we, it's really important for us to partner with organizations and integrate with them so that the scheduling does come into Motivity and that they can take the, the session notes in Motivity and send it off to billing. Right. That, that is important for operational efficiency. Yeah, of course. We're not yeah, for choice yeah. of words. It's not that you don't care. That's not your. Right. That's not your focus. Um, yeah. You obviously right. understand that all of that is integrated, but that's not. Yeah, your area of emphasis yeah. is the medical side. Yeah. Yeah, and we're we're just we're just at the tip of the iceberg of that right now. So like, you know the the tools that we're building right now, they come especially with like in terms of the integrations um, that we're doing. The, the protocol that we're building comes from this clinical background. Mm -hmm. So it come it comes from it comes with an intent uh, and a usability structure around the clinician. Yeah. Right. So like we're not just giving an integration the ability to access our data whenever they want or whatever. Like we're dictating, hey, this is the workflow that our clinicians need. And that what we've seen works. So this is how we do it. And if you want to integrate with us, this is, these are the touch points. This is how it works. Right. It's very simple. But we've already done the work. And so that we're just making that system better and better and better. So it's, um, like I said, I think, I think this is the way forward. I think people need, a, they need this best in class type of solution that works for mm -hmm. your unique organization. Yep, so, yeah, I think that's just the the way forward now, and uh, I think people are starting to see that. Hopefully, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. All right. Well, is there anything else you would like to to share or to talk about with the audience? Um, any advice you would give organizations that are are looking to switch to Motivity and like? ways that the best ways that they can start doing that implementation yeah i mean i think if an organization is um i can only speak to the switch from paper to um to motivity but um you know there is a learning curve um especially if your behavior analysts have been um writing individualized programs in you know a different method so I I would recommend doing it the way we did, right? So all of the clinician, all of the clinicians doing transitioning one or two um, learners on their caseload at a time until they get up to you know up to capacity. And then um, one of the things that we also said was at that time that we were making the transition, any new learners coming in would go straight to motivity. So there was no back end. Um, and, you know, we really, really valued uh, the, you guys did such a great job with us front loading all of, all of the support. Um, so that was super helpful. I mean, I think that you, you know, you, you want to set an organization up for success. So um, I, my recommendation would be like, just take it slow, especially if you're making a transition from paper. Um, and, and don't worry about the fact that it may take a couple of months. It'll, it'll, in the end, that will be um, much easier for your, for your behavior analyst. Yeah, and I think one of the things that impressed me about your, I think you you do this in so many ways, like with your curriculum, with like your training, but you you applied a very systematic uh, and very open and clear communication approach with mm. your team, right? You had internal gurus, which um, pivotal to success of implementing, mm -hmm. implementing electronic data collection, especially on the clinical side, um, like Carolyn, your guru, like... I've met with her several times and um, like she is a motivity expert, like right. <laughs> almost like our team members and having that on 
like in your own payroll has somebody that's there boots on the ground like and helping people in your organization apply motivity to your model because that's the that's the thing that's going to be super important is you can always reach out to motivity for help but they're not going to understand your your model and necessarily right. can apply it so having somebody um, internally is very important, but then also you had that very systematic plan that, okay, step one, the, here's the training, everyone, this is the due date. Everyone had to turn right. in your certificates. Like, <laughs> you know, you made, you made sure everyone had them in, you had somebody overseeing that and like following up with people like, oh, Hey, you're late, you know, and then saying, okay, by this date, you need to have one learner. And then you held everyone accountable. You provide the resources they needed for that, which is the time and training acts like somebody to talk to to help them, which yeah. I think is also pivotal. So it was very impressive to see you were able to get over a hundred learners in your system in three, four months. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, build your library, which was yeah, like yeah. hundred. So so there were some folks, right, that okay, I say we said you need to transition one or two learners. There were some folks that got really inspired and were like, oh, I'm doing everybody, right? And so right. great, you can transition more learners in a month, you know. And so some folks did all of their, you know, 13 learners in two months. They transitioned everybody, right? I think Carolyn's a really good example of that. And she was like <laughs> so opposed to motivity when we like this is the worst thing ever it's not you know whatever and then the, the light bulb went off and she's like this is the greatest thing and you know that she wanted all you know she's in there doing all kinds of stuff that nobody knows like what are you doing in there and, the, and those measures um and that helped I think the folks that were the folks that were less comfortable with the transition or you know their learning curve was slower it did help to see that there that they that there were colleagues that were like really bought into the transition and were really inspired by the the change so I think that totally helped yeah internal people mm -hmm. saying no you can do this like it's not that bad right yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great well thank you so much we really appreciate our our partnership with you, our ongoing partnership with you, and um, um, always enjoy talking to you. And Thank you. Thank you for being on. That's yeah, been great. Time. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Great. Thanks. Bye, everybody.